Good morning. How are you guys? Good. Good, good. Hey, if I didn't catch you on the way in, we have a, a small gift for all the fathers in the room. Uh, we have gift cards to Insomnia. So please, afterwards, come grab me. Uh, I have some in my pocket, and I will hand you one on your way out. If you're new to TCC, my name is Justin. I am one of the pastors here, and I would love to meet you before you take off. Uh, before we dive in, I have two, two announcements for you. The first announcement is this. If you were here last week, you already heard this, but in case you missed it, we announced that in the spring of 2022, we will be joining Calvary Hillsboro and Rich Jones, their lead pastor, and Rich and I will be co-leading a trip to Greece and Israel and Rome. It's essentially a Journeys of Paul cruise and then also a bus tour in Israel. And if you are interested in going on that trip, maybe you think you might want to go, but you just have questions, or maybe you're for sure want to go, but you still have questions, or maybe you just have questions and you're not sure, I want to invite you to an information lunch next Sunday. So it'll be a week from today, right after this gathering in that classroom on the right as you exit. Um, we are going to provide lunch for you, so I do need you to RSVP for that. So you can do that in one of two ways. The first way you can do it is just email me. So my email is justin at tablecommunity.church. It's also on the website. Or you can sign up the old-fashioned way with pen and paper, and I have that at the table out front where I typically stand. So stop there and sign up. We'd love to see you at that lunch. The second announcement before we dive into the scriptures is about one of our deacons. If you are new to our church family, uh, here we have elders who function as the primary shepherds and leaders of our church, and we have staff who carry out the day-to-day -day functions of our church, and then we have this role of deacons, and deacons fill a very important role. They kind of fill the gaps where the staff are unable or the elders aren't able to get to, and for the most part, they serve behind the scenes, and you don't really get to see them. Let me show you a picture of all of our deacons, just to give you an idea who serves in this capacity. You will probably recognize some or all of these people from just being around the church. Our deacons, just so you know, our deacons are unpaid voluntary roles and they serve on a two-year cycle. Sometimes they will serve longer than two years and sometimes they don't. One of our deacons has faithfully served for two years and will be stepping off the deacon team at least for a period of time. I'll show you a picture of her, Miss Janice Isaacson. Now she's in the room. I won't look at her too much because I don't know if, uh, I think I might get a little teary-eyed. Let me, let me brag about Janice for just a moment. Uh, if you have not yet met Janice, she is uh, such a wonderful human being. Like you are missing out if you haven't met Janice yet. You can be around her for about a minute and then you'll start to just see the love of Jesus just oozing out of her. Her words are seasoned with grace and with wisdom. Um, she is a woman of prayer. She is a fantastic leader in our church. Our church is a better place because of her and the work that she's been doing over the last two years. So Janice, I want to say publicly how grateful I am for you. Um, I know, and a lot of you may not see this, I know how much you pray for me, for my family, for our elders, for these people sitting here. Perhaps more than any person in our church, you labor in the work of prayer, and I am so grateful. So thank you for your work. So. Um, if you see Janice afterwards, just give her a big hug, even if she doesn't look like she wants one. Just give her a big hug and uh, tell her how thankful you are for her. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we will dive into the scriptures together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment, for an opportunity to gather with other followers of your son Jesus as we sing and study your word and take communion. God, we partake in these sacred acts as believers have been doing for thousands of years. 
not out of religious duty or begrudging obedience, but God, we do these things because we actually believe the gospel and our lives have been changed as a result. God, as we look at your scriptures this morning, we ask for your Holy Spirit to open our mind and our heart to your voice. May we continue to be changed by the truth in this book, and may the gospel of Jesus, the life-changing, soul-restoring good news of Christ, be exalted in every passage we look at. God, we love you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Years ago, I read a book titled Moonwalking with Einstein. The subtitle of the book is The Art and Science of Remembering Everything. In the book, it's a really fascinating read if you haven't read it yet, the author, he opens by telling a story about a time when he worked for Slate Magazine and he was assigned to cover the 2005 United States Memory Championship, which is apparently a thing. I didn't know it existed, but it does. So he shows up to this uh, memory championship and he watches these people compete to see who has the best memory. And basically there are five events and all the people start the first event and then it narrows its way down as it gets to the final event. Here are the five events. First, each contestant was given 15 minutes to read and memorize a 50 line poem that they had never seen before that moment. And they all did it. The second event, they were given a stack of 99 headshots with first and last names attached to those pictures, and they had 15 minutes to study the names and then recite as many names as possible, and many of them could do all 99. The third event is they had 15 minutes to memorize a random list of 300 different words. The fourth event, they were given five minutes to memorize a sequence page of 1,000 random numbers. And then the fifth and the final event, each remaining contestant was given five minutes to memorize the order of a shuffled random deck of cards. And many of them could still do that. The shocking thing is the participants actually did it kind of casually, and some well within the allotted time limit. So the author of the book, he he talks about how he approaches one of these contestants, and he says, you got to let me in on the secret. What is happening here? Is this a big trick? Are you just fooling everyone? Is this like a Rain Man scenario where everyone's just brilliant? Like, what is going on? And the guy says, no, actually, we're all pretty normal. We have normal jobs. We're just like you. Like, we're just pretty normal people. But what we have learned is that we can work out our memory muscle. We can flex our memory muscle, and it grows over time. The same way you can go to a gym and work out a particular muscle in your body, you have a memory muscle that you can work out. He goes on to explain it like this. His name was Ed, says this. Ed explained to me that the competitors saw themselves as participants in an amateur research program whose aim was to rescue the long lost tradition of memory training that had disappeared centuries ago. Once upon a time, Ed insisted, remembering was everything. A trained memory was not just a handy tool, but a fundamental facet of any worldly mind. But then, in the 15th century, Gutenberg came along and turned books into mass-produced commodities. And eventually, it was no longer all that important for you to remember what the printed page could remember for you. He goes on, and and the author of the book asks him how he does it, and he says this, it's all about technique and understanding how the memory works. Anyone could do it, really. Now, I have my doubts. I have my doubts that anyone could do this, really. But here's why most people don't do it. Because we live in a world that allows us and encourages us, and I would say enables us to not remember anything. You see, he referenced Gutenberg in the printing press, but it goes even deeper than that. For us, it's even worse because we have smartphones in our pocket and there's literally an app for everything. You do not have to remember anything. So directions on how to get somewhere. You don't have to remember how to get anywhere now because your phone will tell you. 
You don't have to remember phone numbers. You remember growing up, you have to memorize your friend's phone number? You don't have to do that anymore because your phone will do it for you. Passwords, you don't have to remember passwords anymore because your phone will memorize the passwords for you. And here's why I find this, this topic of forgetfulness so fascinating. Because I am convinced that the reason followers of Jesus fall and fail and sin so frequently, it's not because we don't love Jesus, because we do. And it's not because we don't want to live good lives, because we all want to live good lives. And it's not because we don't know the difference between right or wrong, because most of us know the difference between right and wrong. I believe the reason we fail, the reason we sin so frequently is because we forget who we are in Christ. We forget our identity. In other words, it's spiritual amnesia. Sin is operating out of an identity that is not yours. You forget who you actually are. Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish theologian, says it like this, the presence of sin can often be traced back to spiritual amnesia, forgetting our new, true, real identity. As a believer, I am someone who has been delivered from the dominion of sin and who therefore is free and motivated to fight against the remnants of sin in my heart. You must know, rest in, think through, and act upon your new identity. You are in Christ. Now, He's talking about that on an individual level, but I would argue that the same is true for us at a communal level as the church. I believe the way this church and other churches can get off track, can lose sight of the mission, it's not because of a lack of desire. It's not because of a lack of passion or planning or a lack of evangelistic zeal. I believe we get off track as a church when we forget what our identity is as the church. Jesus, in the passage we're going to look at today, he is going to make it abundantly clear what our identity is as his people, and as a result, what that actually means for us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put all of these words on the screen, but while you're turning there, let me just set the stage. We have to remember that this isn't a disconnected thought from Jesus. Jesus is standing on that hillside, and he is preaching one continual sermon. So he is just simply continuing what he has already said in verses 3 through 12, which we looked at last week in the Beatitudes. There is no break in his teaching, even though our Bibles tend to break it into paragraph chunks or categories. We have to remember this is coming right on the heels of what he has already said. So in verses 3 through 12, Jesus, he, fl he flips their idea of wh what they thought being blessed meant. Like he flips it upside down. He flings the doors to the kingdom wide open and he says, everyone is welcome. My kingdom, this kingdom that I'm establishing, it's not just for the elite or the educated or the put together. Everyone is welcome in my kingdom. All the people you thought would be excluded from my kingdom are now welcomed in and I'm going to invite them in first. And then right on the heels of that, right after he says that, he says this, look at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Now stop there for just a second. When we hear the word salt in our American modern mind, we typically think of that like very inexpensive thing that makes McDonald's french fries taste amazing, right? Like, or some kind of french fries, Chick-fil-A fries, whatever. We think of the thing we put on our food. Now, this may shock you, but the original audience would not have thought of french fries. It wouldn't have come into their mind. I know. I learned that in seminary. Salt, in the first century, it was a, it was a very common but also a very expensive commodity. So, for example, soldiers were often paid with salt. This is where we get the English word salary from. The Latin word salarium comes from the payment of soldiers with salt. Salarium means the payment of soldiers with salt, hence salary. So if you've ever heard the phrase or used the phrase worth one salt, 
This is where they get it from. This is what they're talking about. Now, salt had a variety of uses in the ancient world, but it was used primarily for preserving meat. I mean, think about it. There were no refrigerators or no freezers. There were no ice machines or Yeti coolers. Peter wasn't just carrying around a Yeti cooler behind Jesus as they traveled around Galilee. They had to preserve their meat by using salt. And this practice of using salt as a preservative for meat, it continues on even into modern times, especially in very remote parts of the world. Weldon Philip Keller, uh, who was a pioneer missionary in Kenya and, and living in a very remote region, wrote it like this. He said, under the high temperatures and hot weather of the region, decay and decomposition of meat was astonishingly rapid. We had no winter weather or cool frosty nights to chill the flesh. Besides this, swarms of ubiquitous flies soon hovered over the butchered carcasses. The only way to prevent them from ruining the meat was to soak the slabs of meat in a strong solution of salt. So Jesus, he's standing on that hillside and he's looking at a group of people like this and he says, you are the salt of the earth. We'll come back to that in just a little bit. He continues, but if salt has lost its taste or some of your translations may say saltiness, how shall its saltiness be restored? And it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, of course, it can't be. It's not restored. Jesus goes on to say this, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's Feed. Now, this image of being thrown out, it's something that Jesus says quite frequently, and Matthew is very fond of it. Matthew records it a lot in his gospel, and every time he talks about it, it's tied to the judgment of people. Let me show you just a few examples of this. We'll put this on the screen. In chapters 3, 6, and 7, it's talking about being thrown into the fire. In chapters 5 and 18, being thrown into prison. In chapters 5 and 18, again, being thrown into hell. Through the bad away is used in chapter 13. And then in chapter 13, again, they are thrown into a blazing furnace. In other words, to be thrown away is not a good thing. You don't want to be thrown away. It is not good. That's what you need to take away from that point. But Jesus continues. And this time he's going to use a different metaphor. So he's been talking about salt. Now he's going to talk about light. Look at verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. In the ancient world, it was very common for cities to be built up on hilltops for their, their protection so that they could see people coming at them. But Jesus basically says the inverse is also true, that when you're up on a hill, people coming from far away can see you for miles. And so we should be like that city. Verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. Now, this seems obvious, but if you Put your lamp in a cabinet or under a basket or cover it up. It doesn't give off much light. Now, um, it doesn't happen frequently where we live, but every once in a while we lose power. And when that happens, if you were to take your flashlight or your cell phone flashlight, you wouldn't like peel back the covers on your bed and put the flashlight there and then cover it back up, right? You put it somewhere where it gives off light. We learned a long time ago, if you have one of those KitchenAid stand mixers, if you just put a flashlight in that bowl, it just turns into this like weird lantern. There's a tip for next time we lose power. You can thank me when it happens. But you wouldn't hide it. That's his point. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, what do we do with this? It's a very short passage. It didn't take us very long to get through it. The question we have to ask is, so what? Well, at first glance, it seems like a pretty simple text. It's very straightforward. You are salt and light, so go and salt the earth. Go and be the light in a dark place. 
And because this is pretty straightforward, this passage often gets preached the same way. Almost every message I've heard on this passage, including ones I've preached on this passage, goes something like this. Well, salt is a preservative. Since they didn't have refrigeration back then, they used salt to preserve meat from decay. Therefore, we are to be the salt of the earth, preventing it from moral decay. And it's a sermon about preventing the earth from moral decay. Or salt is used to flavor food, to make it better. So as salt, the church is supposed to flavor society to make it better. And honestly, I've heard some people take this to an extreme and they'll say things like, well, salt was used medicinally in the first century and so we should be the healing agents of the world or salt makes you thirsty and we should make others thirst for Jesus. It's like, okay, I feel like we're taking it to an extreme here. One article I read this week said that there are some 14,000 modern uses for salt. So the allegorical applications are seemingly endless. I mean, we could do a 14,000 week series on being the salt of the earth. Now, are those things true? Like, is salt a preservative? Yes. Is salt for flavoring? Yes. Is it wrong to preach it that way? No. I think it'd be foolish to say it's wrong to preach it that way. But here's my concern with with running that direction with this text. I think that if we run in that direction, we place an undue emphasis on the wrong words in this passage. We focus so much on what it means to be the salt and light that we gloss over a stunning and radical word spoken by Jesus. Let me show you the word that just stopped me in my tracks as I studied the text this week. It's this word. You. You. And here's why that's so stunning. All throughout the Old Testament, what Jesus and his disciples would have known as the Bible, our Old Testament, the people of Israel were God's chosen people. They were blessed to be a blessing. They were the people who cared for creation. They were God's representation to the world. They were, to use the analogy of Jesus, they were the salt and light. But then Jesus, he comes on the scene and he expands this reality. Jesus stands on that hillside and he looks at a bunch of ragtag, uneducated nobodies and he says, you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are my people now, blessed to be a blessing. This would have been a really powerful moment for everyone listening. In a sense, what Jesus is saying is he goes, hey guys, remember all that weight that was placed on Israel? And they go, yeah. And he goes, well, now it's on you because you're part of my kingdom. And I imagine at this point, This is Justin's imagination. This isn't from the Bible, but I imagine all the angels in heaven like leaned over and they're like, whoa, whoa, time out, Jesus. You see who's in the crowd, right? This is who you're going with? And Jesus goes, no, I got this under control. I thought this out. These are the salt and light. These are my people. I'm gonna gonna place a lot of trust that they're gonna carry out this identity in the world. It was truly astonishing what he's doing. At that point, he basically says, listen, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. It's not the temple. It's not Jerusalem. It's not the Torah. It's not the Pharisees. It's you. It's you. Now, some of you look a little skeptical and you might be wondering, okay, Justin, how do we know that this was such an astonishing moment? How do we know that the disciples even picked up on that? Let me tell you how I know that. Flip over to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. These words will also be on the screen if you don't have your Bible. 1 Peter chapter 2. One of the guys sitting on that hillside as Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount was a guy named Peter. We know that from chapter 4, verse 18, where Jesus calls Peter to follow him. So Peter's sitting on that hillside. He's listening to this sermon. Some 30 years later, Peter writes a letter to followers of Jesus living in what is now modern-day Turkey. It's in our Bibles as the letter of 1 Peter. And in that letter, Peter, 30 years later, is still talking about this reality that we have been given this responsibility. So listen to what he says. First Peter chapter two says this, verse nine. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, who is Peter writing to there? Is he writing to like elite Jewish men? No, he's writing to all believers. He's writing to men and women, Jew and Gentile, slave and free. In other words, he's writing to us. He's writing to you. And he's saying, you are the salt and light. You are the chosen race. You are the holy nation. So let me try to tie it back into what Jesus said on that hillside. One commentator I read this week said of this passage in Matthew 5, this passage encourages us to reimagine our role in the world as God's agents of redemption. Another author, Margaret Feinberg, said it like this. With these words, Jesus awakens each of us to our divine purpose. So if I am allowed to mesh these two quotes together, we could say that in this passage, Jesus is reminding us of our divine purpose of being agents of redemption in this world. That's what Jesus is reminding us of. And if you haven't noticed by now, this, what Jesus says here, shapes how we do church at TCC. It shapes how we function as a church. You see, historically, at least in the last couple of decades in America, uh, with the, what is known as the church growth movement, uh, and I, I know that that might not be common language for everyone, but in the church growth movement, basically what we've seen is that churches have done everything possible to make the Sunday morning gathering the salt and the light. And the church has spent a ton of money and energy and time trying to make this one hour the place where they are the salt and light. And listen, I'm please hear this with as much grace as I'm trying to say it. I'm not knocking other churches that do this, but this, this is where you get the type of church that has a coffee shop with like a full espresso bar in the lobby. This is where you get like the children's ministry that looks like Jesus Disneyland. It's where you get like on Father's Day, you, they do like a raffle for a Harley Davidson. We give you like a $5 insomnia gift card and we're like, happy Father's Day. This is, I, I lovingly in the past have referred to this as like the lights, lasers, and fog machines church. And I'm, I'm not knocking it. Please hear this. Like there are churches in our area like that. There are brothers in this area pastoring churches like that. And I am grateful for them. They are reaching people for Christ. I have nothing negative to say about them. But here's what I will say. That's not us. We just don't believe that that's how we here are to live out our identity as salt and light. Sunday morning, it is important to be sure, absolutely. But our identity as salt and light requires so much more because remember, Jesus says, you are salt. You are light, not some building, not some preacher, not some staff, not a band. So let me say it again as clearly as I can. The Sunday gathering, though important, is not our strategy to reach this city with the gospel. Table kids, though important, is not our strategy for reaching the city for Christ. Preaching, though important, is not our strategy for reaching the city. Our strategy, our entire strategy for reaching the city with the gospel is you. It's you. We're placing, we're placing the ownership on you because I think that's what Jesus does. It's you being transformed by the good news of Jesus and then going to work in every domain of society. It's being transformed by the grace of Jesus and going to work in a cubicle at Intel. It's being transformed by the gospel of Jesus and going to be the best barista you can be in insomnia. It's being transformed by the gospel and owning your own business. 
It's being transformed by the gospel and volunteering at your kid's school. Transformed by the gospel and playing at the playground and meeting your neighbors. Transformed by the gospel and meeting your neighbor and asking how you can serve them. That is how a city will be transformed. You living as out your identity as salt and light. I love the way pastor and author N.T. Wright explains it. He says, our task as image-bearing, God-loving, Christ-shaped, spirit-filled Christians, following Christ and shaping our world, is to announce redemption to a world that has discovered its fallenness, to announce healing to a world that has discovered its brokenness, to proclaim love and trust to a world that knows only exploitation, fear, and suspicion. The gospel of Jesus points us and indeed urges us to be at the leading edge of the whole culture, articulating the gospel in story and music and art and philosophy and education and poetry and politics and theology. May we be a people who are transformed by the gospel on the leading edge of culture as salt and light. Now, with that in mind, that our identity is salt and light as agents of hope, I want to offer two words of exhortation, two words of exhortation and hopefully encouragement. In order to live out our identity as salt and light, we must be stubbornly committed to two things. Stubbornly committed to two things. We'll put them up on the screen. Number one, we must take our holiness seriously. Number two, we must stay engaged in acts of justice and mercy. Here's why I say that. Remember what Jesus said in verse 16. Let's put it back up on the screen. In verse 16 of chapter five, I think, here we go. It says, so that they may see your what? What does it say? Good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven that they may see your good works. Now that phrase, good works, it's used all over the New Testament, most notably in Paul's letter to his young protege, Titus. And it always refers to two things. Good works refers to two things. When you see it in the scripture, this is what you need to think. Good works means acts of holiness and piety, acts of holiness and piety, and acts of justice and mercy. Good works does not mean one or the other, it's both holiness and acts of justice and mercy. So I wanna to speak to both of those briefly as we try to wrap this all up. First, let me talk about holiness. Now the word holiness is not a popular word in our culture. It's not one that we hear a lot of sermons on, but it is used in the scripture a lot and it means to be set apart for a specific purpose. So set apart or distinct or different counter-cultural and to do so in a way that other people notice to do so in a way that other people notice. Leslie Newbegin, the famous missiologist, speaks to this idea when he says, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Live in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel of Jesus is the only answer. And I believe that is exactly what Jesus is getting at, that they might see our good works, our life of devotion and holiness and sanctification, and that someone would demand an explanation for it. And the only answer to it is Jesus transformed my life. In Acts chapter eight or chapter 18 and 19, there's an amazing story about how the good news of Christ transforms a city, an ancient city called Ephesus. The gospel transforms this city in such a way that all the people in the city, all the people in the city start living holy lives and not continuing to sin. And it's so noticeable, it's so noticeable that those people in the city of Ephesus who made money off of sinful behavior had to shut their business down and it stirs up a riot in the town. So it would be like this. 
if the gospel of Jesus so transformed the city of Hillsboro, beginning here and in the other churches that are preaching the gospel all around us, if it began there and then overflowed into the community and, and within a month, everyone in the city of Hillsboro has been so transformed by the good news of Christ that anyone in our city who profits off of sinful behavior has to leave town. So all the strip clubs on TV highway shut down because no one is showing up. No one is objectifying women anymore, so they shut down. All the people in our city who are dealing drugs have to go to another town because no one's buying drugs. The police department has to shut its doors because no one's breaking the law anymore. You just have neighbors looking out for one another. Everyone's being obedient. Everyone's caring for one another. And so the police department just goes, you know what? We're just going to shut it down because we're not needed anymore. Can you imagine? It's hard. And yet, that's what we see in Ephesus because the gospel transforms the lives. That's the type of movement I want to be a part of. And I would guess that that's the type of movement you want to be a part of. That's the type of city you want to live in. And it will only happen, it'll only happen if we take our holiness seriously. Now, I want to press a bit here because when we talk about holiness or being set apart, I think, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not in some ways, that you tend to just think of like the big sins. So we measure our holiness by not committing big sins. So we hear something like this and we go, great, I don't cheat on my spouse. I've never murdered anyone. I don't steal. I don't get drunk. I'm not addicted to drugs except for caffeine and sugar, which seem to be okay. So we're just going to brush that one under the rug. And I would say to you, like, that's great. That's great that you don't do those things. I'm so thankful you were not snorting cocaine. I'm so thankful you didn't murder your neighbor this week. Good on you. Like, that's a great, a great thing. But our holiness in smaller areas matters too. I'm convinced that one of the greatest strategies of Satan is to convince us that some sins are smaller than other sins. It's a lie. It's not what the scriptures teach. Our holiness in smaller areas matters. Maybe I can explain it like this. I once read an article by Joni Erickson Tata, a well-known author and speaker. Joni is now in her 70s, and the article was titled, A Letter to My 30-Year-Old Self. So if you're in the room and you're around 30 years old, listen, but I would argue if you're in your 70s, you should listen as well. In it, she says this, Oh, that I had been more actively engaged in my own sanctification, that I had partnered more with the Holy Spirit to not only sniff out sin in my life, but to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. I had become skilled in housebreaking small transgressions, taming them to look respectable, a slip of the tongue in gossip, watching TV when the Spirit says, turn it off, running mental movies of past successes, flirtatious remarks, a slight fudging of the truth, cherishing inflated ideas of my own importance, slacking off in prayer, daydreams I shielded from the scrutiny of the spirit, and a few worldly passions now and then. She goes on. Oh, young one, Joni, I would say, don't allow these things to sink their talons into your heart. Don't cling to the very things which impaled Jesus to the cross. The cosmic stakes are too high, the price too great. Don't jeopardize the sphere of influence God has given you and don't diminish your eternal estate. So good. Friends, may we never forget our identity as salt and light. May we take our holiness seriously and may we live in such a way that people ask questions and the only answer to the question is Jesus. But there's another side to this. It's not just acts of holiness. It's also acts of justice and mercy. That's what good works means. So let's talk about justice and mercy. 
justice and mercy. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, says this about mercy. I think this really summarizes the heart of why we do this as a church. Mercy to the full range of human needs is such an essential mark of a Christian that it can be used as a test of true faith. Mercy is not an optional addition to being Christian. Rather, a life poured out in deeds of mercy is the sign of genuine faith. If there is no mercy toward the needy, then there is no faith. Acts of mercy are evidence of salvation, are evidence of salvation. Now, at this point in a sermon, you might expect me to tell you that you need to do better at this. Like, go do more. Or perhaps it's a great opportunity to tell you that we're going to do a big service project and we need all of you to volunteer at it. But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that this morning. Instead, as your pastor, I just want to say thank you. You have stepped up in some incredible ways over the last 15 months as we've navigated this pandemic. I am so honored not to be your pastor although I am, I'm honored to be a part of this community because of the work that you have done. You, not our staff, not our elders, you, like the people who make up TCC. So I have a list of things I just wanna read to you and just to give you an idea of what you have been engaged in as the church, as the salt and light in this city over the last 15 months. Here are just a few ways you have showed up during COVID, okay? You packed 20 plus big bins filled to the brim with food and family activities for families and students at Miller West High School. You provided groceries and essentials for families being served by the family room, including a mom who graduated from a treatment program and a single dad who was reunited with his son. You provided food and volunteer hours for, vol- for food pantries all across the city for Reedville Elementary, Pointer Middle School, Jackson Elementary, and McKinney Elementary. You donated bags and bags of clothing and hygiene items for people experiencing homelessness in our city. You donated bikes to foster kids in our city. Ten families in our church have gone through the process of becoming a host family through safe families so that they could open the doors of their home and invite people into their home who need a safe place to live. Several of you became foster parents in the last 15 months or adopted new children. Many of you put together graduation baskets for foster kids in our city who graduated high school. Upon learning of a domestic abuse survivor trying to get back on her feet, you donated $900 in gift cards along with diapers, wipes, and clothing items for her and her children. You hosted and ran eight blood drives here at our building. Many of you early on in the pandemic became pen pals with some in the elderly community who were living in care facilities around our city and you sent care packages and you sent masks to them. You rallied around several families in our own church who lost their jobs and you helped them pay their rent and pay their utility bills while they looked for work. You donated over $2,000 in grocery gift cards for families in our city who needed help with food. You collected school supplies for families in need as schools began to reopen. Several of you sitting here provided tutoring and emotional support and transportation to kids in the Hillsborough School District. You fully stocked, fully stocked DHS's clothing closet, complete with baby clothes all the way through adult. And you bought so many insomnia gift cards and delivered them to nurses at Kaiser and to the teachers at Glencoe High School. And listen, this is a small sampling of what you have done in the last 15 months. Because the reality is, you are doing amazing things all the time, and we as a staff never even find out about it. You are out there being the salt and light, and we don't even realize. And I love that, because here's here's the deal. We don't need or want credit as Table Community Church. Jesus deserves the credit. And when his people are out in the community being salt and light, people will see our good works and they will glorify their father in heaven. 
Church family, may we never forget our identity as salt and light. May we be a people of good works, both acts of holiness and acts of justice. And may the people all around us see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. In just a moment, we will sing a few songs and we will take communion as we do every week. And if you're new, I feel like I should explain this because I know taking communion every week isn't the norm for some churches. But we take communion every week here. And one of the reasons why we take communion every week is because we are such a forgetful people. We forget so quickly who we are in Christ. And so the reason we come to the tables every single week is to remind us of our identity in Christ, to remind us of what Paul says so beautifully in Ephesians chapter two, that though we were once dead in sins and our trespasses, God has made us alive together with Christ, and it is by grace, by grace and grace alone that we have been saved. And so as you come to the tables today, I pray that you would be aware of this reality, that through the broken body of Jesus and his blood poured out, your sins have been forgiven, you have been united to Christ, and you have been invited into this kingdom life both today and for eternity. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word for your scriptures. I'm always so encouraged when we gather as a church family and we lean into what your spirit is saying to us. That I pray that this place would be a place that lives out of our identity as salt and as light in this community. That we would see the type of revival that the people in Ephesus saw. God, I long for a day long for a day when everyone in this city knows of your love and experiences your grace. Help us to be a people who join you in that. God, as we come to the tables, would you remind us of who we are in your son, Jesus? Help us to see ourselves the way you see us, as holy, as loved, as valued children. God, thank you for being the perfect Father, a Father who does not abandon us or run away, a Father who looks on us and is delighted in what he sees because of his son, Jesus. God, you are so good, and we are so grateful. We love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.